Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. My guest today is going to shed some light on a topic at front of mind for many of us, many women all over the world. And that's all about seeking wellness and feeling well during perimenopause and menopause. Jen Salib Huber is joining us all the way from the Netherlands, but is a native of Nova Scotia. Jen is a Canadian registered dietitian and naturopathic doctor, and she's on a mission to help women thrive in midlife. She helps women navigate the physical and emotional changes that happen in perimenopause and menopause, including their search for food, freedom, and body confidence. Talk in my language. <laughs> Talk in my language. Working from a health at every size approach, she teaches women to become intuitive eaters and build body confidence at any stage of midlife. Well-versed in the integrative treatment options available to women in perimenopause and menopause. She helps women come up with a treatment strategy that helps them go from hot, sweaty, and tired to calm, cool, and confident. <laughs> exactly what we've all been searching for, Jen, I believe. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you here today and to get into this discussion. This is going to be so beneficial for not just my audience, but women everywhere and anywhere. So we share many of the same views and goals when it comes to mm -hmm. healing our clients from the harmful pieces of diet culture and diet history and training people towards teaching mindful nutrition, which eventually learns leads to intuitive eating, as we know, and food freedom. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Let's do this. <laughs> awesome. I can't wait. You are on the other side of the world and it feels like we're here yeah. in the same room together. So thanks for being here. First technology has been amazing for that. Like the last year, especially, you know, like the number of connections that I think have been made as a kind of positive side effect of COVID has been amazing. You know, it just, I think has opened up a digital world that was there, but we weren't using, and it's just been amazing. I agree. We were not using it. We were using it for like the robot mechanisms for getting work done, but we were not leaning on it for connections. And no. I've learned this firsthand. I never thought I was never an online coach until last year. And I never thought I could form connections, but I can form them even better like this. And yeah. to hear people like you and other people say that it just further uh, reinforces oh, so the way amazing. I feel about it. I'm so grateful that zoom is a thing that I didn't even know existed just, yeah. just a year and a <laughs> half ago. <laughs> so first of all, let's start, we're going to, this will end up being a free flowing conversation. I believe I cannot wait to pick your brain. I love all your Instagram content, but what I want to ask you first, first of all, for the purposes of our audience and people listening today, how are we distinguishing in your practice, like perimenopause and menopause? Are they treated as yeah. two separate things or, or how will we do that? So I think it's important to define them because believe it or not, the, the data that we have tells us that about 40% of women who are in this stage of life don't know the difference. So we definitely need to define the parameters of what we're talking about. So perimenopause is the period of time that happens after kind of peak reproductive years and before the stopping of all periods, which is kind of technically defined as menopause. But menopause is really just one day, right? It's the day that marks 12 months since your last period. Everything before that is perimenopause and everything after that is postmenopause. So I think it's important that, you know, when we're talking about this, most of the time women are experiencing perimenopausal complaints because they're either still having a period regularly, irregularly, but they're over 40. Sometimes it can be even kind of for women in their mid to late thirties, but usually this happens to women over 40, yeah. but they haven't gone 12 months without a period. So anything that kind of happens in that, you know, forties, fifties, even kind of mid fifties to late fifties, depending on your genetics and family history, mm -hmm. um, is perimenopause. Menopause is really just the definition of you haven't had a period for a year. And we're now going to assume that you're not going to have any more. Okay. So the symptoms that probably some of my community members are experiencing right now may be perimenopausal yeah. if we're, if we're getting technical about it. Interesting. Yeah. And how early can perimenopause uh, start? Or is that something that we can't really paint with the, uh, you know, whole wide? Brush? Well, you know, it, it's interesting because the average age of menopause is 51. 
And we know that it is largely influenced by genetics. So the age that your mother went into menopause or aunt or older sister is kind of a, a better ballpark, or kind of the best ballpark that we have. But there are many other influences. So um, early life nutrition, smoking, stress, some medications, illness, like there's all kinds of other things that can influence when you actually stop. But the perimenopause can last for eight to 10 years leading up to that. Most women experiencing symptoms for four to five is the average. So most women will start to experience perimenopausal symptoms at some point in their forties. But for some people, including me that have a family history of an earlier menopause with women in my family, often going into menopause by 45, I actually started at 36. And that was kind of my personal entry, entry into what the heck is going on. I have, you know, I have three kids under the age of six, but what is going on? Is this actually perimenopause? Um, And so that's kind of the experience that some women have when they have an earlier set of symptoms show up. But um, certainly for most women, this is something that happens in their forties on average, lasts for four to five years, but can last up to 10. So it's really a decade of her life. Wow. Okay. That's good to know. I'm in the same boat as you. The women on my mother's side of the family tend to experience menopause or perimenopause young, uh, really young yeah. mid forties for my mother. She was, yes. she was full on by then. Um, yeah. so that, okay, this is cool information to have right off the hop because I think, so here's what I'm seeing not really from the outside in because I'm 42. So I'm probably right in there right now, but <laughs> a lot of my community members, I feel that they really dread it as a negative impact to their wellness. So I feel that not only does it come with these physical changes, it comes with these hormonal changes, but it comes with the anxiety probably and the fear of, you don't know how bad it's going to get. You don't know, like versus pregnancy where, you know, the end game goal of pregnancy, even though it's a hormonal time and it's a big pivotal time menopause, there's no sweet little baby at the end. There's a lot of hot flashes and and restlessness and sometimes changes in your body that are fearful can create fear and anxiety for people. So I think that the more we can arm ourselves with this kind of knowledge, then the easier it may be to navigate and still be able to experience wellness throughout it. So this is good. We're off to a good start here. So the big question, can you feel good? Can you actually experience wellness as you go through perimenopause and menopause? Oh my God. Yeah. So I kind of don't even know where to start without just kind of feeling like I have like a brain dump, but essentially one of the big things that we need to change is the narrative around not only aging, but also the narrative around what women should expect. So, you know, I use the analogy that, um, you know, we're not the analogy yet, but you know, we, we know that women don't feel prepared for perimenopause. We know that their healthcare providers aren't equipped to give them um, the best information. We know that many women's symptoms are dismissed for years. On average, women, you know, will experience, um, you know, a misdiagnosis um, for several years before someone actually connects the dots for them and offers them the right treatment. And so I really think that that is one of the kind of the fundamental shifts that needs to happen is that we need to start to acknowledge that, you know, 30% of the workforce is over 50, you know, 30% 30 of women in the workforce are over 50. Mm -hmm. And we have many, many, many years ahead of us. And so if we don't start preparing women, then that is, you know, the, the first thing that needs to change. So the analogy that I like to use is that of pregnancy. You know, if 40% of women who became pregnant said, oh, I didn't know that this could happen, we would call that a failure of our public health system. But public health does not incorporate midlife women. There is no public health program for menopause and perimenopause. It's simply, if you're having symptoms and it's disrupting your life, talk to your primary care provider. But there is no kind of education that's happening in the schools. there's, There's just no access. And so for many women, who are just used to kind of dealing with it and picking up the pieces and just, you know, going on and going on, they get to this point where they haven't been sleeping for years. They've been trying to self-medicate and manage, um, you know, anxiety and mood changes. Um, They have been suffering through body changes and as a result, punishing themselves with Mm -hmm. restrictive eating and punishing exercise. And they're doing it all by themselves because they think that there's nothing out there to help them. 
I honestly um, feel like I just yeah. had a light bulb moment because I, I'm a, I'm a student of life. So I study and research things, big things that are going on in my life. And I know when I was becoming pregnant, I probably could have carried myself medically through that pregnancy. I read so much and studied so much. Yeah. I don't know much about perimenopause and menopause the way I should. I should know exactly what to, like, there's no, there's no rule book for this game of life, but I know I did prenatal classes three times because I had three pregnancies. I, I haven't yeah. been to a menopausal group yet. <laughs> I feel yeah. like it should be available. And it's because our society and the medical culture treats perimenopause and menopause as reproductive afterthoughts, right? Oh, if we don't take care of a woman who is pregnant or intending to become pregnant, not only will her health probably suffer, but there's also a risk to her child. And so the stakes are high. Right. right. If someone in their forties doesn't sleep for 10 years, there's, you know, yeah, she's going to suffer and her family's going to suffer. And, you know, her life is going to be, you know, affected by this in ways that we can't even measure, but it doesn't have the same kind of outcome no. that, you know, we, it just, it's just, it's regarded completely differently. And so this is where I think there's a huge movement of women our age and our forties who are saying like, what the what we need what to the change what? exactly this, what the right? what and i'm i'm all about i'm like on a mission to teach women that it is not only okay but it is pertinent that you take care of yourself and how can yeah. we take care of ourselves if, if we're not given that education and knowledge about what's happening with our own bodies as we age yeah. i'm the first and one that, to know, say the... i love a good birthday celebration i'll never complain about getting older but it'd be cool if i could understand what's normal and what's not as i do yeah and I mean, and that's a thing, right? So if you ask most women um, or many women, uh, I don't want to make assumptions about what happens in menopause, they say, well, you lose your estrogen and you get hot flashes and your body changes. That's kind of in a nutshell, I think the, the cultural definition of menopause. But in fact, what's happening is that for many years in those early perimenopausal years, your progesterone is dropping and your estrogen is increasing. Mm. So when we, and not consistently, it's like a roller coaster, right. right? So some months you have high estrogen levels as your ovaries sputter and churn out a bunch of follicles and eggs. Um, and then other months, you know, you're, it's kind of the Sahara desert. And so even long before women are experiencing you know, big period changes that they can't ignore, they're experiencing the symptoms of this hormonal soup change. So I refer to it as soup that, you know, in the first, you know, 20 years of our life, when we're in our reproductive years, we make the same soup every month, the same recipe, the same ingredients. It takes the same amount of time to cook. We know exactly when it's ready and we can just look at it and we're like, oh yeah, that, that soup's done. But all of a sudden we get into our mid thirties, late, you know, early forties, mid forties, and the ingredients that we've had on hand for 25 years are no longer available. And we have to make sense anymore. <laughs> yeah. And it, it is completely different soup, but yet everyone expects the same soup. And we're kind of in this like, well, I don't have it anymore. What am I going to do if I don't have the ingredients? And so for many women, it really feels like they are living in a different body. And I think that that's the emotional experience of midlife that we're not acknowledging that yes, not only does your body look different, 80% of women experience body changes that have absolutely nothing to do with what they're eating or not eating and how they're moving their body or not moving their body. These are hormonal body changes that are programmed into our DNA, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, they experience these changes. They look in the mirror. They don't see the yes. same person. Mm -hmm. They feel different. They're experiencing, you know, the big one that I call meno rage, which is like that inferno of anger that starts somewhere Why deep in the belly and erupts before you even know it's happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, you know, terrifies some women because they don't recognize themselves you are literally experiencing a shift. And, you know, I like to think of it as kind of a shift to the next stage instead of the end of another, like life is all about transitions yes. and this is just another transition. And there are some unexpected side effects that side benefits of improved confidence once you kind of figure yourself out again. Get to the other um, side, yeah. Yeah, you know, or lots of women experience a renewed creativity, or they feel inspired to do things that they haven't thought about for 20 years. And a lot of that is because as our estrogen levels change, that emotional drive to nurture, take care, grow, give to others, 
we get a little bit of that back. And it's like, wait a minute, I want to take care of me too. And yeah. And so, you know, there's just so much to midlife that we aren't talking about. And it's, it's just about so much more than hot flashes. Mm -hmm. Hot flashes are just kind of the literal tip of the iceberg. Right. So I imagine, and I, I, I feel it and I hear it through my, some of the people I work with that this is connected closely to your mental health. Like this is when you start to experience Absolutely. these changes in your body and your mind and your emotions become something that you don't even recognize yourself. This can be, this can have mental health implications too. So there's such a big yeah. picture around it. And I think the fear of the unknown sometimes makes it the most anxiety provoking. It makes it the most, Mm -hmm. like you said, it's the scary part of menopause and we're reminded that we're getting older, but instead let's, let's look at it as just a, it's a bridge that we're crossing into a whole other yeah of your life like you, you know, you're reclaiming that different part of you. I love that. That's cool. Let's shed some light on that stuff. And there's been some really neat um, studies that have come out looking at other animal populations, um, specifically orca whales, uh, most recently giraffes, that have found that there are other animal groups and species that have, you know, matriarchs in their groups that live long beyond their reproductive years that are, that provide social value to the group, right? right. As you know, as leaders and as, you know, nurturers and matriarchs. And so I think that for those of us, you know, who are fortunate enough to have elders in our life, you know, women in our life who have, you know, lived through circumstances that we haven't, we recognize the value of that. And I think that that's what women in midlife need to claim that we're coming into those years where our wisdom and experience has value. We just have to claim it and we have to make sure that others have the opportunity to see it and that we don't get overshadowed by the fact that we're not reproductive anymore. Our productivity doesn't end with reproduction. So much. Yes. Claim it, embrace it, shout it from the rooftops. You're saying all the right things. This is excellent. This is going to be so valuable for anybody who listens to it. So if somebody, you know, this is probably the most common thing I hear in my practice, um, around menopause and perimenopause. It's like somebody who's suffering from that uncomfortable feeling inside of their own bodies. Like I hear a lot about the menopause belly. I'm doing air quotes for anybody listening. Yeah menopause belly or that bloat or just that discomfort where they don't recognize their body, whether there's somebody who struggled with uh, weight in the past or not, they're still experiencing these changes and it feels very stressful. And what can I do? And often people ask me, what core exercises can I do? And it's not about that. It's not about that right now. And it's not really about that ever, but what advice would you give there? So I, I talk about the four pillars of intuitive nutrition for women in midlife. And the first pillar is understanding. The second is self-compassion. The third is attunement. And the fourth is gentle nutrition. But I'll kind of touch a little bit more on the understanding piece. Many women get to midlife and notice these body changes and immediately go into that blame and shame of, what have I eaten? What did I do wrong? What should I do more of, less of? And they're looking to change something. And this is often something that they've been trying to change maybe their whole life. So they've been, you know, in this kind of diet cycle, maybe for 15 or 20 years, or they now have this kind of change in their midlife body. And they're feeling really confused and scared because of this cultural narrative that like, oh, if you don't get that under control, right? you know, it's just going to kind of run away from you. So the understanding piece is that 80% of women in midlife experience body changes. Uh, Again, these are pre-programmed into your DNA. So even if you don't do anything uh, differently, chances are your body's going to change. And some of that is due to the hormonal changes. So as our estrogen levels um, start to decline, especially what happens is that there's a tendency for the, the fatty tissue in our body to move away from our hips and thighs and more towards our belly for that, you know, what they call the kind of spare tire. Um, And I like to reframe that as a life preserver because that little bit of extra fatty tissue that's that's around your belly can actually produce estrogen. And that little bit of estrogen that can be produced by that adipose tissue can be used to protect your heart, your brain and your bones, you know? And for most women, this isn't a extremely significant change in how their body looks and feels. It is simply a discomfort 
from a reshifting, or maybe they changed a couple of clothing sizes. And yeah, they don't like that. But ultimately, that change isn't likely to have a significant impact on their health. What can have a significant impact on their health is if they all of a sudden start restricting food groups, if they start restricting nutrition, if they start over-exercising. And we're seeing eating disorders peak for women in their 40s. Body image dissatisfaction is peaking for women in their mid forties. And I think a lot of the diet culture, wellness culture that you and I are well aware of Mm -hmm. um, has really taken advantage of the vulnerability that women feel and prey on them. And so by the time that I work with women, they have often, they kind of don't even know what to eat anymore or they don't even know how to move. Like, you know, women will often come in and say, you know, come in virtually obviously, but you know, we'll say, Uh, I've spent too much time figuring out whether I should have an apple or a carrot and trying to figure out how many grams of net sugar are in each. Mm -hmm. Um, That is never a debate that should ever have to happen. No. Right. Ever. And that is wellness culture. That is diet culture that has, you know, created these set of rules around what we can and can't eat and shouldn't, shouldn't eat. So the worst part is that it's not going away. Like as hard as you and I work, it's not, it's right there in your face at all times. And when you're feeling particularly vulnerable or down on yourself, then that's what you see and you can't unsee. And you're kind of wondering like, oh no, but there's too much sugar in this fruit. I shouldn't eat it or this vegetable and you should be feeding your body. So when women are feeling that like, oh my God, but I just feel so uncomfortable. What can I do? I can't, I can't do this anymore. Like that panic that happens is I try and give them the tools to understand what's happening in their midlife body so that they realize that like, again, this is a change that's pre-programmed into their DNA. I give them tools for self-compassion because you can't hate yourself into a body you love. I say so that you all the cannot, time. you can't punish yourself and expect to love what you see in the mirror. It Absolutely just doesn't not. work that way. Mm-hmm. And then I teach them about attunement because attunement in intuitive eating is what we talk about in relation to hunger and fullness. Like, how do I know when I'm hungry and what type of hunger and how can I, you know, respond to that in a way that feels good. But it's also about recognizing the needs for rest and connection and movement and enjoyment and laughter. And all of those needs need to be met too. So if somebody struggles in their, if they struggle in their relationship with food, because they feel like they're emotional eaters, or, um, you know, they have a hard time kind of, you know, managing that, then we need to work on attunement. And once we've kind of done all of that work, we can circle back to nutrition and judge and use gentle nutrition because yes, food matters, just not in the way that we've been led to believe. And it doesn't have to be perfect, right? Um, you can want to include more protein because it's gonna help you to maintain lean muscle as you get older without having a goal of 150 grams of protein a day, kind of like, you know, do or die, yes. right? Yes. <laughs> Yeah. So what are your, okay. So this may be a little bit of a tangent, but (laughs) it's easy for me to say this because a lot of people listening are going to know me and know what I believe in very well, but what is your opinion on these? You know, there's, there's coaches around and I know of some locally, I know of some internationally that I follow, but try my 14 day menopause hormone hormone blasting diet. And it's, you know, it's leafy greens and lean proteins. It's a restrictive diet is what it is. And it's going to, what is your opinion? Sorry. I started to go off on my opinion. No, well, I mean, like there's no evidence for diets, right? Like this is kind of the fundamental flaw in every plan that promises easy, effortless, sustainable, maintainable weight loss, right? 95% of diets fail. We have really hard data to tell us that. Meaning that they all work initially. They all work in the first three to six months, but after six months, they all start to fail because we can't maintain the restriction. And depending on the amount of restriction, our bodies may actually start slowing our metabolism down to compensate for the restriction. Mm -hmm. And that's just the physiological side of it. The emotional and psychological side of it is that it creates a scarcity mindset. And so, you know, I talk a lot about the scarcity and abundance mindset, but Mm -hmm. if you believe that you can't have something and it's right in front of you, your, your brain wants it more. It all of a sudden has like, takes on the shine of the best Instagram filter. It's like, Ooh, look at that. It does. I talk Um, about that a lot. And I use the example of, uh, because before, long before I was even a coach in health and fitness, I was buying all the diets, doing all the diets in my younger years. And I love 
chocolate chip cookies. I love chocolate chip cookies. I don't care if it's a, it can be fresh out of the bakery. It can be homemade. It can be out of a bag. It can be a chickpea or a protein or whatever. I still love them. I love all chocolate chip cookies. So if you give me a meal plan and you say, Jill, you're going to be in the best shape ever. You just can't have cookies. All I will think about is a cookie until I have all of, until I eat every cookie I can get my hands on. And that's the way we are wired. This is why restriction doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. And it's the restriction that creates the craving. It's the control that creates the craving. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, a lot of people, there's a lot of, you know, kind of like sugar addiction diets and things like that, where, you know, people are led to believe that sugar is addictive that it's the worst thing they can put in their body, that they shouldn't want it. It's not just that it's bad for you, but you shouldn't want it. If you really cared about yourself, you wouldn't want it, right? Um, And so, but what happens is that it's actually the behavior of restriction that creates the craving. And we know this from the rat studies. Have you heard of these famous rat studies? Okay, so I don't know if you've heard me or someone else talk about them before, but you know, probably about 20 years ago when the study first came out, it kind of like, blew the nutrition world up because it was, you know, hard proof that, you know, sugar is addictive because these rats, the way that the media headlines kind of wrote it was that the rats who had access to Coca-Cola chose that over cocaine. Well, clearly it's the most addictive thing out there, Mm -hmm. but what they didn't tell you and that I didn't even know until a few years ago is that it was only the rats who had restricted access to the Coke to one hour a day that chose it. Right. Right. So that scarcity. to me, yeah, it's scarcity. Yeah. Right. So I think that once we remove that, and so like for so many women, understanding that scarcity abundance mindset is a game changer mm-hmm. because when they can get to a point where they can really truly believe that they can have whatever they want, whenever they want it in amounts that they need to feel satisfied, the urgency is completely gone away. It's just like, poof. Oh, I don't actually want that. Or maybe I do, but I won't need as much to feel satisfied as if I told them, then if I told them they could only have one, then they need follow up. I don't remember the last time I ate a chocolate chip cookie because now I can, (laughs) I can go right now and buy whatever kind of chocolate chip cookie I want. And now that I don't beat myself up over it, it's not a thing I look for as much. Yeah. You, if you have one and you want one, you'll enjoy it, but you don't need it. Right in the way. So for a lot of women, especially I think women who get to kind of midlife in their forties and fifties, who've been dieting for a long time, there's so much scarcity built in around food. Yeah. Right. There's so much scarcity around how much they can have when they can have it. Now we have intermittent fasting, creating scarcity around times a day. Oh, I, yeah. right. And so between feeling guilty for wanting bread, feeling guilty for wanting a cookie, feeling guilty for wanting breakfast. I mean, it's crazy, right? It's just crazy. It's it because people ask me all the time, my opinion on intermittent fasting, it's just, it's just restrictive eating in another spin. And the studies that have come out are really telling us that it is no different than any other diet. No different. And in fact, there's some science behind with women, how it can negatively impact your hormones. And that's not what we want. This is what we're trying to regulate. This is what we're trying to keep safe. This is, uh, well, you know, what I tell women too, is that your body is always going to prioritize survival over reproduction. Yes. And so if it doesn't feel like it is getting enough food to survive, it's not going to release an egg every month. And we know this, we see this with women who have eating disorders, but we can see this kind of on a smaller scale in women who are restricting. Like I've absolutely seen women who have done, you know, the ketogenic diet, um, who have been in ketosis, stop having a period. Like I see that frequently. Um, and you know, and they're put on the pill to get their period back. They're not told to start eating carbohydrates again. No, like it's crazy. It is. It's so backwards. It's like weight loss is still so glorified over everything else. And I think that's yeah. why, and I think like, it, you know, I always tell when people start with me, I always tell them, this is a journey, this mindful, I teach mindful eating on the way to intuitive eating. Yeah. And it's a journey that takes time. It's you can't expect it to be perfect along the way. And you can't expect that things are going to change overnight because yeah. that's not what we're looking for anymore. We're not looking for these quick fixes that will send you in a tailspin down the road. 
So it's what I call the undieting process. Like yeah. you have to undiet your beliefs about food and movement mm-hmm. before you can kind of rebuild it, right? Yeah. So you can't just substitute one thing for the other. You really have to like break down the bricks one by one yeah. and undiet those beliefs and start fresh. And then it becomes intuitive. But if you're just trying to swap one behavior for another, um, then you're kind of still stuck in that rule-based paradigm. And I find too, people that some, some people, definitely not all, because this is all such individual experience on the road to mindful eating, but some people will be doing so, um, you know, it's all positive and they're embracing it and they're moving along day to day without, you know, it's definitely not a perfect journey, but then the summer comes and the summer is so much enjoyment and vacationing and stuff. Mm -hmm. And some people really struggle with circumstances like that. Like when life isn't completely normal, because then they feel like, what they've done every other time is that the Sunday night before you go back to work on Monday, you must find the next diet. Like you must undo vacation. But when people continue to practice it on a consistent basis, and I'm seeing this too with some of my um, members that right now they're returning from the best vacation of their lives because they weren't so food. They were able to enjoy the late night pasta dinners. They were able to get out and move every day. You know, it wasn't all or nothing, which is the problem. Yeah problem. Absolutely. The all or nothing thinking is, um, you know, the biggest, I think, change that can have such a positive impact on so many pieces of our lives. It's just self-compassion that hundred percent perfection isn't required for anything. No, for nothing, um, especially food and movement. Yeah, especially. And so is there any, you know, we, we both are clear in that we don't really believe in, in dieting and diet culture and all those things, but are there any specific foods that we should try to make sure is in our daily consumption as we yeah. navigate through perimenopause and menopause, would you say? So I'm a big fan of including plant-based protein um, in ways that you can enjoy that doesn't require hundred percent. So you don't need to become vegan. You don't need to become vegetarian, but there are some benefits to some of those um, foods that contain plant-based protein. So things like beans and lentils, especially foods like soy, tofu, soybeans, um, flax. And that's because they contain something called phytoestrogens and phytoestrogens are plant-based compounds. They're in all plants, but are more concentrated in these foods that can have some distinct benefits for women. Um, as long as you can find ways to include them in ways you enjoy. So I'm not going to tell someone to have it, you know, at the expense of all other things, if they don't enjoy it, but I try and work to find ways that women can enjoy them. Um, and these phytoestrogens can help women in midlife in a few different ways. One, they can help with some symptoms like hot flashes, night sweats, and vaginal dryness, any of those estrogen deficiency symptoms, because the phytoestrogens are actually estrogen modulators. So when our estrogen levels are really low, they can help to prop them up. But when they're high, so especially in those periods of perimenopause, they can actually help to bring them down a little bit. So they're kind of like a buffer. So they, they have that benefit. But phytoestrogens and or the foods that they come from, we can't be 100% sure, are also good sources of, you know, magnesium and iron and protein and fiber and have been associated with improved, you know, cardiovascular health, um, heart health, bone health. Um, And they can even cross into the brain through the blood brain barrier and are being studied for their effects on mood. So, um, you know, and insulin resistance, which is, you know, something that we all experience as we get older, regardless, men or women, um, you know, these foods are also associated with less insulin resistance. So one of the big things that I do try and, you know, inspire people to do is just to kind of find ways to include these. So that might be flax on your cereal in the morning. It might be soy milk instead of milk. It might be making, uh, you know, chickpea uh, chicken instead of, you know, a chickpea recipe instead of chicken. But it's about finding ways that you enjoy, that your, works for your family, that works for your life, so that it doesn't feel like you're always having to follow a plan or follow a set of rules or that you've done something wrong if a whole week goes by and you haven't had any. Like, you know, we're really trying to get out of that all or nothing thinking I love um, and include those foods more often. Because I think, you know, my, when I started to heal my own food issues, a big part of it was me shifting my thinking to let's just focus on eating to feel good and eating for energy consequences. 
And so if we are struggling with things, like you said, all those estrogen related symptoms, and we can do that, then that's, you know, if food can help. I, I do believe food has major yeah. healing properties in many ways. So would you recommend then getting a serving of those types of plant-based proteins every day, every meal? Yeah. So I often suggest starting out a few times a week. So kind of, you know, you, and this can be like an easy switch, especially if people, let's say, for example, make a smoothie regularly or have right. cereal in the morning or something where they're using milk, super easy swap with soy milk. Um, ground flax is another one. If people have things like oatmeal or have yogurt, it's really easy or a smoothie to throw that in. Um, and then sometimes we, I, like a lot of the recipes that I, um, give women are on making like one pot meals. So things like stir fries that have maybe chickpeas and chicken so that it's not like hundred percent all in, you can kind of have that slow introduction. Um, but you know, this is really something, again, it's the, I, I hate the word consistency and I haven't found like another word that substitutes that because it feels very diety to use that word in the context of food, but it's, it's, we're talking about the long game, I think is the best kind of alternative, right? Yeah, trying to get the good stuff in over the long range. So yeah, exactly. Feels like I, I also, I use that word, but I know how it can, I usually use it with a big yeah. explanation. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like I consistently don't eat them when I'm on vacation because it's harder for me to do, right? Like yeah. if I'm, you know, at a hotel or even at an Airbnb, like I would have to buy all the things. So I'm really haven't had any probably for the last six weeks other than here or there. But now that we're coming into September, which for me always kind of gives me that renewed sense of wanting some rhythm and routine, yeah. I'm starting to think about like, oh yeah, I want to make this dish and I want to make that dish and I want to do that. And if I do that for 20 years, I, no one's going to miss the six weeks that I didn't like it. That's kind of what I try and teach people that we're trying to find changes that feel good enough that you want to keep doing them and that they eventually feel intuitive. So I kind of call it that intuitive eating with intention. So it's not a rule versus yeah, it's the habit, right? Yeah. The habit for me. I say, I say similar about movement. Like, uh, you know, we do here in virtual bootcamp, we do three classes a week. And I say, if you miss one, then all that means is that you missed one. It doesn't mean yeah. that you have to catch up next week or you have to double down yeah. tomorrow or anything like that, because it doesn't matter if you make it to your workout today or tomorrow or the next day, it matters that you're still moving in a month and a year and 10 years from now. That's what matters is the, yeah. the kind of yeah. long game. And I like that with the food because I found with myself too, once it, that was helpful in dropping that scarcity mindset that we talked about earlier, when I started focusing more on, instead of restricting certain foods, focused on getting the things in that would make me feel well, things that would make me feel energetic, make me sleep well, make yeah. my di digestion feel good, all of those things. And you can only be attuned to those and attuned to how you feel after eating them if you don't have that kind of white noise of what should I eat? What shouldn't I eat? Yes. You know, am I allowed to have this? Is this on the plan? Like when you're preoccupied with meeting a set of rules instead of tuning into how your body feels when you have something, mm -hmm. that's a really hard thing to do. It is. It is. And it's so much, as we said, undoing of the past yeah. for a lot of people. Um, so what, with perimenopause and menopause, things start to change. And sometimes we question, is this what's happening to me now? How do I, so what's, what's some good advice in how to know that this is the shift that's beginning and then therefore be able, as you said earlier, to kind of lean into it and embrace it and, yeah. and, and help yourself through it. So there are no blood tests or tests of any kind for perimenopause. There is one hormone FSH that we can measure if we suspect someone that is in menopause, but for perimenopause, especially if you're still having regular cycles, your symptoms and your age and your family history are going to be kind of the, the best barometer for whether or not we kind of label you as perimenopausal. Um, there are a set of nine symptoms that can be used as kind of early signs um, on my website. People can sign up for a workbook that lists them all, uh, but they are often what we call the experience changes. So changes in mood, changes in sleep, uh, worsening PMS, newer worsening headaches or migraines, body changes, skin changes, and then kind of the traditional hot flashes, night sweats, that kind of thing. Um, and so for women who are in their late thirties, early forties, who have at least three of those, even if they're not having period changes, 
then perimenopause should be considered. So working with your primary care practitioner, you know, if you're 39 and you're all of a sudden waking up at three o'clock in the morning and you started to notice that you're having a few warm flushes, then maybe a sleeping pill isn't what you need, right? Yeah. And so it's about getting the right diagnosis so that you can have access to the right treatment options. And um, if you're in, if you're over 40 and are having any of those symptoms, then I think you can certainly assume, um, and depending on your healthcare practitioner's experience and education, um, you may or may not get support. So that's kind of the biggest thing that I find is that a lot of women who are under 45 are kind of dismissed when they're at, when they say like, Hey, is this perimenopause or am I going crazy? Right. They'll be like, Oh, well, you know, you're under a lot of stress. Maybe you need an antidepressant or maybe you need this. And, um, you know, and I think that there's a time and place for all of those options, but if perimenopause isn't included in that list of differentials that are being considered, then women may not be getting the right access. So there is no test. It's largely based on symptoms, what's happening with your period. So if you're not tracking your period, now is a great time to start because you can really see the changes happening. You can see going from early, um, very early perimenopause to early and into late based on what's happening with your period, um, which really just helps you connect the dots, right? Because once you connect the dots and you feel like you actually have knowledge and that empowers you to be able to feel confident in whatever decision you make about how you're going to manage those symptoms, so. That's great. So I'm going to give you a tough question now because (laughs) I'm a bit of an anomaly. I had my third, I had my first two babies before I was 30. And then I had also, I'm a, I'm a sharer. So here comes everything. I had my third baby. I became pregnant at 35 and had him at 36. The night that I delivered him, I hemorrhaged. I had a really hard time after birth. So, um, and after that, then I had I mean, my periods were hemorrhaging basically until I saw yeah. a specialist and got it taken care of. So I had surgery. I had a DNC, a full uterine ablation and had a tubal while he was yeah. in there. Um, but so now, and ever since that surgery, I do not bleed. I have everything yeah. else. Like I've had, I have all the same PMS symptoms where I feel emotional or like my breasts yeah. are sore and all of those things, but I just don't have the bleed. So what would be some yeah. of the signs that I would look for? I guess the heightened body temperature. Yeah. So I would still track other symptoms and, you know, so it's the same for women who, um, you know, have really light periods and maybe they kind of start to change. Uh, you know, women who have the IUD, especially the one that contains some progestin may not get a period or symptoms. So it can be harder, but anything that happens on a cyclical nature, um, there's value in tracking that and also being able to note when something new happens so that you can just start to notice like, huh, two days before I get tender breasts, I have a really bad sleep and wake up really warm. Um, that, cause it's really common that in those early perimenopausal years, women will experience hot flashes and night sweats the week before a period. So if you can start to kind of, you know, connect the dots, um, yeah. So just tracking it. And, you know, there are so many different apps out there. It doesn't have to be a paid app. It can just, it can just be a, like a free sheet. So in my, the workbook that people can sign up for, there's literally like a paper tracker that you can just kind of write down when you have them. So just anything that's going to be top of mind that you will remember to do so that, you know, if you start to notice something is happening more often, more consistently, you have a bit of data to back it up because certainly a lot of the women um, that I work with will say like, you know what, I feel like this has been happening for a while, but it wasn't happening consistently enough. Like one month it was there, one month it was gone, then it was there for two months and gone for three months. That by the time that they get in to talk to someone, they have a hard time answering questions like, when did it start? (laughs) So if you actually have like, hey, I first noticed this last year and now these other things are happening and this has happened, it's much easier for everyone to connect the dots. Right. Yeah. Cause you give yourself a little bit of that history and confidence that it's actually a thing instead of, yeah, exactly. So I think I've been saying, am I having a hot flash or am I having night sweats? But I'm somebody who previously a few years ago, I'd probably go to bed with full flannel pajamas and socks on. And now I am too warm, no matter what. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> little that no is a clothing. very common thing. <laughs> little yeah. or no clothing. And I am too warm throughout the night, no matter what happens. <laughs> Absolutely. I used to say that for all of my twenties and probably a good chunk of my thirties. I lived in turtlenecks. I loved them. I wore turtlenecks like all the time. I had probably like 20 different turtlenecks. Now just the idea of a turtleneck makes me like, want to like rip my shirt off. 
feels like some <laughs> form of torture now. Totally. Yeah. I totally get that. And it's funny because I never, I always needed like the heavy blankets on the bed and all. And now it's like, oh Lord, I am warm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am warm. So what do you, what is your basic, I guess, overarching broad level advice to somebody in my space, somebody who's here to feel more well, to feel more healthy, to mm -hmm. be happy and confident to their bodies and their either in perimenopause or approaching, what's your best strategy? What's your best broad advice? My best advice is use this opportunity to get to know yourself in a way that isn't based on trying to look like someone else. Because yes. I think that for so many of us, we were sold a bill of goods that we could diet and exercise our way into someone else's body. Yes. And when we didn't meet that, all of a sudden, you know, and we're confronted with midlife and like, oh my God, I've been trying to do this for 20 or 30 years and it's not working. And I'm feeling all these other things. Like just take the opportunity to undiet your life, take the opportunity to get to know yourself and to figure out what really matters and what you actually enjoy. And because life is too short to, you know, work out in a way that you don't enjoy or to eat food that you hate. Um, but also just to know that, you know, there it's an opportunity for advocacy for yourself too, because, um, you know, if you feel like something needs to change, this is an opportunity to change it, but in a way that maybe is aligned that you won't need to change it again in three months because it didn't work. Exactly. Right. That takes care of you instead of further hurting yeah. you from anything else. I'm, I mean, I'm huge in talking about bodies change bodies will yes. continue to change. We can't expect to look like we did as prepubescence. Like no. it's not an especially, we can't expect to look like a 25 year old at 45 years old, no. things will change. I have been exercising and eating pretty much the same way for 15 years now. And my body is changing and I'm yep. public. People see photos of me. My body changes. It's not changing because all of a sudden I've started to eat too many chips or it's not changing because all of a sudden yeah. I started dieting. If I look leaner one year or something, it's I'm doing the same things. I'm taking care of myself yeah. as best I know how, and my body's changing and that's okay. And, and I think that the, that's the big take home is that we need to normalize the fact that bodies change, not just for ourselves, but for the next generation, Absolutely. Um, you know, so that it, that's, that's my big why, right? I just yeah. don't want my kids going through kind of what I went through. And I, and I often say that our generation, women in their forties, I think are very uniquely kind of positioned to have had the full meal deal experience yeah. of diet culture. Um, you know, our grandmothers and grandparents were either born during the war or shortly after. And so they didn't grow up with any idea of, you know, restricting food because they often didn't have full access to food. Mm -hmm. So our mothers and our, that generation, the baby boomers grew up, you know, with more, but also grew up with full indoctrination into Twiggy, the thin mm -hmm. ideal weight watchers, all the diet food that came on the market. Um, and like, you know, this belief that you can prescribe a way of eating and that there is one way of eating that we should all have. Yes. And so that, that was what we grew up with, right? That's what yeah. we were taught. And, you know, so a lot of that I think has influenced our beliefs about body and health that is a, that is unique to our generation. Agreed. So, and I think and now we have to undo it. <laughs> As hard it is for, for people in our generation to undo what we've experienced throughout our life to now, to now we're also in a unique uh, place, as you said, that we've got so much life ahead of us. We have yeah. the ability to change it. I, when yeah. I kind of withdrew from this industry for a few years, uh, for a good time back in 2017, after I closed my gym, I disappeared because I knew I had to work on me and I knew I had to heal myself a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I did that with so much purpose and intention because I felt like I was drowning. I felt like I couldn't do this. I could not work in this industry anymore. I cannot be in a place that's harmful and full of smoke and mirrors and full of bullshit that we're feeding people. I need to either not be here or I need to heal myself, come back and make a change. And that's what I'm yeah. completely committed to. And I always will, because I don't want the little girls or little boys that are my kids age right now to grow up suffering. Like so many women of that baby boomer generation that you mentioned that are members of mine, 
tell me that their mother walked him into Weight Watchers at 10 years old. And I yeah. don't necessarily believe that was malicious intent on their mother's behalf, but no. it was, no. it was no. what they did. It was, you know, like, as you said, Twiggy, don't eat, just smoke cigarettes and be thin. Like that's also yeah. don't speak or get a career or do anything that fills your soul. So it wasn't great advice back then. And it's not great advice now, but we do. And, and the media change. that we were exposed to also made every person in a larger body the bully, the enemy, yeah, like just personified them as a bad person. Mm -hmm. And so there was very much this belief that became kind of just part of our core that the worst thing that you could be was in a larger body. Yeah. And the worst yeah. thing that could happen to you is for your body to change, right? Um, and so I think that thankfully, I do think that the younger generation is changing that for themselves. I see that I have a teenager and I see what she sees on social media and what she shares. And, you know, I'm always kind of really happy to see that she's noticing those things too. Yeah. Um, but I think that the conversations are starting to change. We just have to keep the conversation going because as you know, wellness culture and diet culture is a profitable business and it's a profitable industry and people are always going to try and make money off of people's insecurities. Absolutely. It's a, it's a multi-billion dollar industry dependent on vulnerability and yeah. dependent on shame and those things. But I am here yeah. single-handedly to try to change that. And I know you're over there <laughs> doing the same and hopefully between us, we can change the future for people, for our children and for even yeah, people in our I own generation. So. And then we have yeah. in my community, we have our youngest participant is 18. Our oldest is 81. Love it. They are all on board for this positive shift. Like we call it the shift love, show over here. Love it. Show. <laughs> so we are love trying, it. trying to come, uh, to come above this, but this is great because this hits a lot of our demographic here and this, this insight that you can give us on what's happening to our bodies. And I think at the beginning of our conversation today, the biggest light bulb I had was that you're right. It's not, we are not educated. There's no I mean, yeah. there may be, but how many pamphlets did I read on birth control? How many pamphlets did I read on pregnancy? Yeah. How many pamphlets did I read on tracking my ovulation to become pregnant? But I don't remember being handed any information on, okay, well, now you're in your forties and here's what you should know is about to happen to your body. Yeah. So it's good. That Normalizing the experience, I think is a big part of the empowerment because, you know, like we said before, so many women really do feel like they're going crazy. There's something wrong with them. Mm -hmm. um, and because no one's talking about it. I mean, there are people talking about it, but it's not being talked about in the way that we talk about that everybody who's pregnant knows that it's normal to get morning sickness or, you know, like that's normal and is part of kind of everyday knowledge. Most people don't have any knowledge of menopause beyond hot flashes, maybe right. a few or minutes, anger, right? You know, moody yeah. or anger. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so when we normalize it, when we talk about it, when we make sure that women are being offered the right treatment options, and you know, then that's when women find wellness, right? When they feel heard and listened to, and feel like they actually have support in finding health and not just managing symptoms and navigating this bridge over to a new part of life, a new and exciting part of life. Yeah. This was such a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Oh, so tell our you. listeners how they can find you. Your Instagram has so much wonderful content. What's the best way to find you if they're looking for more? Yeah. So on uh, Instagram is at menopause.nutritionist and uh, definitely kind of where I keep everything updated um, for people who are interested in working with me one-on-one -on -one, who are from Atlantic Canada, which may be some of your viewership. Um, I do have the ability to work with people one-on-one -on -one as a naturopathic doctor and a dietitian, but I also offer group programs for people all around the world um, that enrolls four times a year called Beyond the Scale, which is specifically for women in midlife who are looking to undiet their life without feeling like they're giving up on themselves. And so you can find the links in uh, my bio on Instagram uh, or on my website, which is jensaleepuber.ca, which maybe you can put in the show notes. Absolutely. Thank you so Thanks. much for sharing your knowledge, with you. us, your passion and your enthusiasm for helping women achieve wellness, especially in the midlife. I appreciate you being here so much, Jen. Until next time. Thanks. Take care.
Thank you once again for listening today to my For the Well of It podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a positive rating and review, and also share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. I promise to keep it real and keep the inspiration coming for the well of it.